WPSL Port St. Lucie. And now it's time for We Are Just Christians, live from Savona Church in Port St. Lucie. Here are your hosts, Mike Schmidt and Gary Jones. Good morning, gentlemen. Good morning, and welcome to We Are Just Christians. We're really glad that you've tuned into the show today. We appreciate it very much. I know I say that every week, but we really are glad that you're listening. Hope you'll make it a habit if you haven't done so already and can stay with us for the rest of the hour here. We'll be on till 10 o'clock Eastern time here on WPSL. And we're going to be taking your live calls, comments, questions, whatever it may be that you have in the stack for us today. We really want to open it up to you. Makes the show a lot better when the audience participates. So in just a moment, I'm going to give you the numbers to reach the show. We Are Just Christians is a live call-in show, and my name is Mike Schmidt. I'm the preacher and one of the elders for the church here on Savona Boulevard. Is Gary Jones. How are you doing, Gary? I'm doing good this morning, Mike. Unusual partners here. We're, we're here ready to uh, talk with you and present some material if uh, no one calls in about different Bible subjects. And so let me give you the numbers. You can reach us uh, three ways, we'll say, start off the bat. We can, you can reach us by calling in the show live. You can reach us by texting us, and you can reach us by email. So let's go down that list. If you want to call the show live, which is the best way to get in, and we're going to put you at the front of the list, call 772-340-1590. 772-340-1590 is the number here in Port St. Lucie. And uh, Ray there at the station will patch you right through to us, and we can have a conversation. The ground rules are... You can ask anything you want or say whatever you'd like to say. Uh, We'll respond to that, most likely, by giving you a Bible reference or some biblical information for you to think about or chew on, whether we agree or disagree. And we can have a conversation about that, whether we agree or disagree. And we'll give you the last word in that, because we're not here to take advantage of anybody or set you up or bait you or anything like that. Pardon me, this is about having a conversation about spiritual things. And so pretty much any topic that you want to talk about is on the table uh, this morning. We don't care if you're a believer or not a believer, or if you're a church person or not a church person, if I can use that language. I mean, you know, you know what I mean by that. We, we don't mind that one way or the other. Uh, we'd be glad for you, to, for you to call if you're not a believer or if you're against Christianity. Um, that would be fine with us, and we'll have a conversation about that. I'd like to hear what's on your mind, actually. I think everybody else would, too. So call in at 772-340-1590. can also reach us by text message, not only during the show, but during the week. In fact, we have a text message lined up this morning to begin the show with, if uh, if none of you call in. But um, the text numbers for Mike are 772 772-260-6120, 772-260-6120. And Gary's text number is very similar, 772-260-6220. I don't know whether yours is similar to mine or mine's similar to yours, Gary. Well, Mine's 100 digits earlier, <laughs> so we'll go with that way. But anyway, we, I don't, we ended up with very cl- close cell phone numbers. And so you can reach us by text message at either one of I those numbers. I think I got mine after yours. You, you might have by a little bit, yeah. Makes sense. But in any event... Um, you can reach us by text message either during the show today, and we'll try to respond in some way, whether on the air or texting back to you, or you can reach us during the week if you'd like to ask a question in advance or 
have a comment about something went on on the show or some other thing, just go ahead and text those numbers, 772-260-6120, We also uh, accept emails. We'd be glad for you to email us if you want to do something longer or maybe that's more convenient to you. It's a simple email. Hopefully you can remember it, justchristians at att.net, justchristians at att.net, and we'd be glad to uh, take take your email and respond to that and so forth. So thank you for listening and hope that you can join the show. A lot of people listen and never call in. They have questions of their own, and somehow they think that their question or comment wouldn't be you know, suitable, but it usually is because everybody's got the same general questions. I can almost guarantee that someone else out there has sure. the same question. And, and, pr- and probably it's a, the kind of questions people have, Gary, are the kind of big things people stew on that almost all men of one time or another have considered. Why do bad things happen to good people? You know, all those kind of questions. H- how did this happen this way? I- is the Bible reliable? You know, those are the kind of questions that people have. And if you've got something more specific or if you've got some, something you'd like to talk about of an encounter that you had with someone in a church or something like that, we'd be glad to talk with you about that also. So there's a way to get a hold of We Are Just Christians, and uh, we really appreciate it. This show is based on the idea that we can be just Christians without being part of some man-made uh, denomination or depending upon other things to get us through life. The big important questions in life are not, not answered in a laboratory or a test tube. They're answered in the scriptures. The things that really concern men and have concerned men from the beginning are the things that the Bible deals with, and we believe that that's the answer. And so we're going to point you not to human tradition, not to councils, not nothing like that. We're going to point you to what the Scriptures say and encourage you to take a look for yourself at what the Scriptures say and then obey and base your life upon those things and be just a Christian. Now, the Bible talks about how to become a Christian, which we'll try to deal with a little bit later in the show. But not everybody, Jesus says, not everybody that calls me Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. So it makes a difference what you do. And and Gary uh, brings up our our, uh, theme scripture, John 12, 48, 48. which tells us why why we do this. What is it, Gary? You have it there in front Uh, of you? I will have it in front of me in just a fraction of a second. John 12, 48, Uh he who rejects me and does not receive my words has that which judges him. The word that I have spoken will judge him in the last day. Okay. All right. Well, we, that's the that's one of the basic things that we get across every week on this show. I keep right. telling everybody, underline that one. Yeah, underline that one. That's right. Well, we have a phone call, and then I want to get to the text message that I mentioned a moment ago. So, uh, Jerry, are you on the on on the phone uh, today? Are you there? Gary, I didn't mean to break your chain of thought, but no, go ahead. It's easy to do. Uh, well, well, I was wondering, uh, I took ancient civilizations in college, and the word Amen was a god, the uh, Egyptian god of uh, Egypt, and the word Amen, uh, meaning I believe, uh, I, I guess that's what the word Amen means, I believe, when all we say Amen or Amen, mm-hmm. uh, but he was, uh, uh, Amen was a god. And I just wonder if you want to comment on that and uh, clear that up for me. And thanks for taking my call, guys. Well, I appreciate that, Jerry. Well, a couple things, if I understood the question properly. And, you know, I taught, teach classes. That happened the other day. Um, I think a question came up in a Bible class here. 
And someone told me later, I don't know if you really understood what what they were saying. And, and probably I didn't. And it isn't because the person was unclear it's because it's hard to always interpret it. But I, 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 I don't think, Jerry, just as a basic response to your question, that the God in Egypt, Ahmed, is related to the word Amen in the Bible. Um, the, the word uh, Amen in in the Hebrew, uh, it's, it's a Hebrew word, and it means truly or so be it. Okay, so when we say at the end of a prayer, in Jesus' name, amen, we're saying, may it be so. We're right. asking God for right. what some, we're asking, and this is true. This right. is our this true, is true. Thought. So they, this this is our is, true thought. This is what we, really, what we really mean. And so that's what the word amen means. And, and uh, it's used quite a, quite a lot in the scriptures in various ways. In fact, one of the more interesting ways this word amen is used, uh, and it's, it, even in the New Testament, it's a Hebrew word. It comes over because the Hebrews said this all the time. When Jesus says, verily, verily, I say unto you, the word in Hebrew is amen, amen in the text. Yeah. He's saying the word amen, amen as a double you know, introduction to these statements, meaning truly, truly. And so it comes in verily, verily. Well, the word verily is a Latin derivative meaning truth. Veritas is the word for truth in Latin or ver- various forms of that word. And so you get this truly, truly, or verily, verily, or amen, amen uh, in the New Testament as well as in the Old Testament. It's this, it's the same word brought over. And uh, so it's something that we should now. Now, Jesus is also called the amen, the, the so be it of God. This is what God has said. But it's a word that's used relatively commonly. It also means faithfulness, surety, things like that. In our language. And I don't know if there is a relationship between the Egyptian God with a similar sounding name and this word in Hebrew. I will confess I'm unaware of that connection. It could be. And I'm not disputing that. Yeah, but I'm, I, try, I'm trying I to simply, find the Egyptian I God. don't think that there is a connection between the two because um, the word <clears throat> Amen is a Hebrew word and was used not about in a common way, not so much about. God himself, although it's used quite a bit, but it's um, it's used uh, it's used more of a of a of a statement of assurance or amen and amen, you know, that kind of thing. And so it's used all throughout the Old Testament. And when you come to the New Testament, you see it's word it's used as this word verily. And then in a lot of the different prayers such as Romans chapter 9, verse 5, uh, excuse me, eleven thirty-six. through him are all things, to whom be the glory forever, amen. It's used in the New Testament in that form, and then it's also used in the form of truly or verily. All right, um, I think that that's about, I don't know, Gary, did you find anything? Did you look up the uh, idea I'm of the, the trying, Egyptian God? I'm trying to find the only similar one I see in the list is Amun, A-M-U-N. Yeah, Amun-Ra. Yeah. Was an Egyptian god, yeah. yes, and I don't know, remember what he was a god. He was one of the major gods, I believe. Yeah, um, I'm, I'm trying to look that up right now. But, but I, I, don't I don't think don't the words think are related. Not, not that I can find. It's an interesting thought, though, and I like the way your mind works, Jerry. You're connecting up these things. Sometimes you find out there's a connection. Sometimes 
you're surprised by it, and sometimes you find out there's not. All right, Will, I appreciate the call. If you want to call back, Jerry, that we didn't get your question properly, you want to call back and ask another one, please do. Let me remind you of the number, 772-340-1590. Appreciate John texting in there with the, uh, the Amun-Ra as an Egyptian god. I think that's correct. Um, but uh, 772-340-1590, and then you can text us, 772-340-26. What am I saying? I'm saying it all wrong. Starting, 772, the text number 772-260-6120 or 6220. I had about three thoughts going down a narrow pathway that only part of one would fit through that time, Gary, <laughs> in my brain. So it was all crowded up and jumbled up there at the, a little bit of a, a traffic jam coming out of my mouth. Okay, thanks for thanks for calling in, Jerry. Now, we had a text earlier uh, today from uh, – oh, Jerry called back. All right, I just got a text. Jerry, what's on your mind? Uh, yeah, she did get my question correct. Okay. Uh, I was wondering when, we, when I took this class was in the 90s, uh-huh. uh, uh, he explained to us uh, – the professor explained to us that presently the uh, Egyptian army of 500,000 strong, a half a million strong – and what I'm wondering why, if they have that money, you know, army, why can't we just pass the approach to them uh, rather than, you know, risking uh, U.S. lives, you know? I mean, that sounds like a lot of people, you know? And uh, thank you for taking my call. So, so why, why didn't we use that Egyptian army in the wars we've had over in the Persian Gulf? Is that the yeah, question that you're asking? Army, I mean, no reason for U.S. citizens to get killed, you know? Well... Yeah, we can we can certainly wonder about and dispute the amount of American soldiers, number of American soldiers have been put in harm's way over problems in the Middle East. Um, I, I I don't think that Egypt has been a, at all a reliable ally in our fight against uh, uh, Muslim terrorism, particularly because uh, you know they're going to be pretty tribal about that support of Muslims. It's very difficult have Muslims fighting against Muslims on the side of Christians. Now, Muslims fighting against Muslims all the have time. for centuries all the time, still do, but they don't usually take the side of what they consider to be infidels or Christians against other Muslims. That's not common, although it is, has happened occasionally, and that's going to then involve... Mike... Uh, what's that? Go ahead. When the, the, uh, what they say when the uh, Red... I think it was a Red Shoe... Uh, Opened up, it was, they were being followed by e- Egyptian soldiers uh, uh, when a Red Sea parted. Yeah. And as soon as it got to the other side, it uh, it fell in. And uh, I always wondered about that. Were, were those Egyptian uh, uh, soldiers that were following them? Or? Yes. The the uh, in the incident in Exodus, where when Egypt when when excuse me when Israel was called out of Egypt. And the slave, he freed them as slaves. Um, they they were followed by the soldiers of Pharaoh at that time. This is probably about fourteen fifty so, so BC. Egyptian. They were Egypt. Yeah, the Egyptian chariots. Oh. Pharaoh sent them after the Israelites to bring them back. He was leading, in fact, his the army. If I remember, the, well, thanks I, I, for clearing, out, clearing that up, Mike. Uh, yeah, it was that they were Egyptians. Now, the interesting thing about the Egyptians, Gary, is that as far as 
ethnically and racially, the Egyptians of the time of Joseph, when he went down into Egypt and was sold into slavery in Egypt early on, when, when he was sold into slavery, uh, there was a different kind of Egyptian. Different ethnic Ethnically group. were Egyptians. And then it says, in the Bible it says, that there arose a Pharaoh who did not know Joseph. This was later on, 400 years later. Or well, not quite that long. And, and they began to persecute the, Egypt, the Hebrews who were in their midst as people living in what's called Goshen. They began to persecute them, enslave them, rather than to get along with these uh, with the Hebrews. And so the Egyptians uh, that were of that Pharaoh, the one that pursued Moses and the Israelites out of Egypt into the, through the Red Sea, were a different ethnic group. And that's happened a couple of different times. I think they had been invaded by the Hyksos people from more from the Middle East. So they were a little bit different. And you see that probably there's been a lot of writing about this, Gary. And I can't I'm just the details are a little bit muddled. But in my mind right now, but I believe that they've discovered there's a lot of African blood from more southern Africa in in one of these groups. than there was in, in some of the others. So there's a, and I know that's true today. The present-day Egyptians are also a different ethnic group oh, yeah. than the ones who built the pyramids and so forth, it, as, as a general rule. Uh, of course, com- travel and around yeah. the world today, all these groups are mixed up. But what's that? A comment on this uh, amen thing. Um, the, the Egyptian god A-M-U-N, apparently is pronounced amen, A-M-E-N, was one of the few Egyptian gods that was his form was totally human. Oh, okay. okay. He was later united with Ra, which is the son to Amun-Ra, and then changed his form, and he became a human with a falcon's head. Well, that's what I'm thinking. It was an animal, but I'm thinking of the later god, You're Amun-Ra. thinking of the later one, yeah. and basically yeah. the only commonality that we see is the pronunciation. Pronunciations. Amin? Um, amin. Amin. Okay. That's the only commonality that I can see in any of the literature. Okay, I appreciate you looking that up because I didn't think there was a connection as to actually what they mean. Oh, although they're pronounced the same thing. What do they call that? A homophone? Two words that are pronounced the same but mean different things. So anyway, it's it's kind of interesting. But you know, there there were changes made all through time through the Egyptian gods. So almost what they mean or what they did apparently depended on the time period that you were and it was it's also based like it yeah. like the gods of the egyptian yeah. like the gods of the canaanites and uh, uh the greeks and romans they're ha- having these dramas carried out in the heavens and on earth uh and and they're it's mythology stories right what they are so yes right. and the, right. I, I just don't think there's a i just don't think there's a direct connection there but yeah, Amun. I, I would have pronounced it Amun. That's the way it's. That's spelled. why I've always pronounced it. And he is one of the very few that is depicted totally human. Hmm. I'll have to do some research on him. I, I I don't only know the name a little bit about it and so forth. Well, I, I've never been. I've, I've learned about the different pagan gods over time, but it never really stuck with me like it should, because I just wasn't that interested in. In that, although I guess the mythology mythology has a purpose and is important in some ways, it tells you something about human nature. 
but uh, I think what you're what you would see, Gary, in the way it is in most mythology, most paganism or polytheism is what I'm trying to say, that these gods have human characteristics of one kind or another, and they let you then pick and choose among them as to the gods that are important to one particular society or another. And so the gods become important, different gods become important at different times of a nation's history or even a person's life, the different gods become important. It's very different than there being one god who we have to learn about him having a personality and characteristics like the god of the true god of heaven, Jehovah. Uh, There was uh, also related to this, I don't want to get too far afield because we do have some other place I want to go this morning, but this concept that's called in in theological studies or ancient history, henotheism, H-E-N-O, then theism, and that is that gods were limited by either the geography where they was existing or the landscape, the topography. So some gods were thought to be gods of the mountains. And so if you want to, if you worship that God, you want to make sure you fought your enemies on the mountains. If you're a God of the sea, you want to make sure you fight near the sea and, and, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, That's one illustration of that. And so gods were limited in their, in their scope of authority. And this is when you understand that, you see that this was what the people in the time of the, of the pagans in the Bible times all, all, always thought or seemed to think quite a bit about. And the distinction was that the Israelites were told that God is God everywhere, that he would follow them across the sea, through the desert, into the mountains, across the plains. He was with them everywhere uh, that, that they were. Yeah, and, that's really and, brought out in quite a few Old Testament books, as opposed to the pagan gods, which they were worshiping around them. Yeah, he brought them up out of the land of Egypt into a promised land. He moved completely with them. Right. So this is a different concept of gods than you find in ancient times. Now, we're not quite as used to that that thought process in dealing with God, because for so many centuries— the basic concept of God that's come down, even even to people that claim they don't believe in God, Gary, uh, believe in a God that's all powerful, you know, and and they believe in one God that's all powerful. Uh, that's pretty much what most people that say they don't believe in God. That's the God they're thinking of that they don't believe in. Does that make any sense? That's the God they don't well, believe in. This all powerful. Uh, the, the God one, that they don't the believe in give that give him that characteristic. Yes, and so it's funny how that you can define what God they don't believe in more clearly than you can what they do. But that's another subject. We appreciate your calls, Gary, and those else who texted in. Um, the text that came in <clears throat> earlier, uh, the, earlier this morning from John. Let's see if I can get this here. Just pull this up. Um, who were the early church fathers, and can we trust anything they say? After 150 years, it is even possible that any is it even possible that any eyewitness accounts have been transmitted accurately? Speaking of the Gospels, I think, and he says the telephone game. So, the early church fathers. Um, now, there's quite a few presuppositions in the, in this text. It's a great question. It's pretty involved. I think we've dealt with this in some fashions in the past, but it's the kind of subject 
Gary, as I probably have mentioned to you before, that either you find fascinating or completely boring. <laughs> so we'll do our best on the radio, which is also hard to do, to talk about a subject, the subject of you know textual criticism and whatnot. But let me just say this. Uh, the church history, a study of, of the history of the Christian churches, is broken up into various time periods. And, and some of it's, you know, w- we don't have to agree with this breakdown to discuss it. Because if you're going to discuss something, sometimes you have to discuss it on the ground of the people that you're discussing it with. So the period before 324 A.D., is called the anti-Nicene period. Not anti as in against, but anti as in antebellum, before, anti-room. It means A-N-T-E is before. And so the Nicene Council, which is an important early council of, of many of the so-called bishops in the early churches, occurred in 324 A.D. <clears throat> and the churches changed after that. This was around the time of Constantine, when the church became the dominant, a dominant force, the official religion of Rome, everything had changed. If you want to read some church historians, they will tell you, like like Philip Schaff and others, <clears throat> that everything had changed by 324 from what it was in the apostolic period. The apostolic period is pretty much ended by 100 to 125 A.D., depending how long you want to make you know, John the Apostles and his friends alive. The churches at that period of time were much different in the way they looked and what they what they thought and how they were organized in the churches in 325, 200 more years. 200 years is a long time. We don't think of it because it's way back there. We think it's all pushed together, but it's not. It was a long time. And so the Antonicene fathers are these Christian leaders and those who wrote that we have records of before 325 then you have the post-nicene fathers and other church fathers and there's i pay even less attention to them because now you're getting into the development of what we now call the roman catholic church and you have one bishop arguing with another bishop you have this bishop who is supposed to be celibate having illegitimate children and making them the pope and you got all this kind of garbage going on down through that period of time one con one council contradicts the next council and it, to me, it's a complete mess. And since I believe that we have to go back and be just a Christian, I don't want to point you in that direction as if you can find very much stuff there that's going to help you to understand what the text says. Well, understanding the text is one thing and quoting the text is something else. Right. <clears throat> so the, Ante- the Antonicene fathers are important in that they – do give us a lot of information about what early Christians believed. Although, once again, I would remind you before we even begin the discussion, I do not consider them authoritative. If you want to quote Polycarp or Irenaeus, that's fine, Irenaeus, but that doesn't mean that we're supposed to follow them and that all the other Christians followed them either. It doesn't mean that. In fact, the apostles say that these early church fathers, as it were, they would come after Paul, he said, after after his departure, that grievous wolves would enter into the flock, not sparing the flock, Acts chapter 20, so he's and lead people astray. He's basically predicting them. That, that, that they would begin to lead people astray. And I'm not using that as a blanket assertion that all these men were bad men. I'm simply saying that <clears throat> the process of deterioration began 
as soon as the apostles died. And that's why Gary and I don't put any confidence as far as what I'm supposed to be doing and believing as a Christian in the Antonicene fathers. We believe, well, we believe in following the apostles and what the, what the text says. I'll give you an example uh, that leads me to believe that I would not understand the Bible the way these many of these men did. And one of them is uh, basically Eusebius. Uh, his birth date runs around 260, 250 mm -hmm. B.C., he, they say he died in 339, so he would have spanned part of that pre part of this period. Right, um, and he's a very important <clears throat> Antonicene yeah. father, the first historian, as it were. Almost. Right. Go ahead. Um, a guy by the name of William Milton S. Terry, in his book um, Biblical Apocalyptics, uh, includes a quote from Eusebius about the writing of the book of Revelation. Now, we know there's been a lot of discussion about when the book of Revelation was was written, but he points out, you know, was it the same as when it was given? Did John write it down immediately? What, what really went on? And so he gives this quote, and I'm going to read it best I can. This is a quote of Eusebius, who had to be writ had to been written probably around 300 or a little after about the writing of the book of Revelation. It says, if, however, it were necessary to proclaim the name of the Antichrist, it would have been declared by him who saw the revelation, for it is not long since it was seen, but almost in our own generation at the close of Domitian's reign. Now, that's what, outside of biblical text, is used by many scholars to date it in around 95 A.D. So, there's something in here. Did you notice that, Mike? He says, if, however, it were necessary to proclaim the name of the Antichrist. There is no the Antichrist. Not according scripture. to the text of Scripture. Yes. There are many Antichrists. So, that's, that's my point. Uh, Basically, he's not looking at Scripture to come to that conclusion. Uh, we could go back to what? Where is it? There's there's three mentions of the anti, of Antichrist in Scripture, and none of them recognize a person. No, but you can say from that that <coughs> some fairly early Christians thought that a single man was coming. Right. And, and you can say that. Now, are they correct about that? Well, no, they were wrong about a lot of things. Even the apostles and thinking that Jesus was going to restore the kingdom to Israel in the way that they thought of it were wrong in Acts 1. Right. So, yes, you have to, but that's that, but you can't say but that, that, that was you can't, you can't very... quote the uh, church fathers and say, <laughs> this is what the Bible teaches. Right. And that's what you're saying. And that's I what I'm saying. Agree with that. You cannot quote them and say, this is what the Bible teaches. But now the, the question <clears throat> before, the question that I think that John, excuse me, texture asked was, was along the lines of, can we believe anything they say as far as the nature of the New Testament itself? Well, and a general statement, I, I'm going to go in a couple of different ways, a lot of ways to answer that question. Number one is, I think most textual <laughs> scholars would say, and I've heard, I've read this in several different places, that even if we didn't have any of the text of the New Testament, we could reproduce the New Testament from the writings of the early church fathers because they were quoted so much 
uh, and the text of the New Testament was quoted so much. In fact, lots of the rest of the Bible was too. That point, by yeah. these early church fathers, and and they agree with each other across the quotations. So from early on, we know that they had a consistent text that they were look all looking at one way or the other that they were quoting. Yeah, and it, what I would point out is when they quoted the scripture, they were careful about what they quoted and how they did it because apparently the variations are not there, just like they're not in the originals. Right, and that's how you verify it. So if you want to look at this from a more um, academic standpoint, this is the kind of thing that some people would appreciate, some not. There's There are three tests that you put to an ancient document. See, I think you can go back. What I would first have people do, if you want to really get into this issue, is go back and look at the documents themselves that we have and the, what, even the New Testament text itself and treat it, first of all, like any other ancient text. How would you determine what Plato wrote or Aristotle or whoever else it was, or Julius, Caesar. Julius Caesar, and determine <clears throat> that we have anything that's reliable? Or is it a forgery? So you use, first of all, what's called the bibli bibliographical test. So the bibliographical test asks the question, are the gospel manuscripts faithful reproductions? That would be with any manuscript, but we're, we're speaking of the gospels now. Are they faithful reproductions of the originals? Because if we had, a, people say, well, we don't have any original text. Well, we don't know that we have any. We, we don't know that. We can't prove that we have any of the original pieces of vellum or, or papyrus that Paul or anybody else wrote on. We could, I suppose, and not really know it because our dating methods are not that accurate and never have been that accurate. How would you know that you have a faithful reproduction of an original? Do they accurately reflect what Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John wrote? I've seen a copy of the Gettysburg Address in Illinois under a big, thick sheet of glass in a, in a uh, museum up there in Illinois. One, one of the five, I think it's five, handwritten copies, supposedly from Abraham Lincoln. I think there are five. He, he wrote it down first on an envelope. I'm not sure where the envelope is. In fact, I don't think it exists. Maybe like the maybe like the scripture. It's the, the that's what I'm saying. I think it is. The original's not there, but he re, he rewrote it down. What he said that day, because probably it was given extemporaneously, partly, and wasn't exactly read off of that envelope. And he wrote it down, and he wrote it to four or five other people that asked him over a period of time. Now, one of the one of the things that's been debated about the Gettysburg Address is this phrase "under God." That one one nation under God shall not perish from this earth. That phrase under God is not in all of those, all of those copies that we have. And I think the one in Illinois is the, is the one that uh, is the oldest one that we think that has that phrase under God. So there is, did, did he say that or not? Well, if Lincoln hand wrote it later and he put that phrase in, I'm going to go with he said it. And Does maybe it really added matter? it and so forth, rather yeah. than saying, that, "Well, no, he didn't say it because it's not in this in this manuscript." You know, you have to go partly with that. Now, that, now that's what he meant. That's okay. what he meant to say. That's certainly what came out of his mind. Right now, uh, by by the way, John, who asked the original question, and we're gonna—I don't want to get off the subject too much. He said, "Remind the listeners that there were no printing presses 
all all these things were hand copied. Well, I, I, that's true. They were hand copied. Now the question is, were they accurately hand copied? Because let me tell you something: print, printing presses do not always do an accurate job of printing things. If there's a, and they may even be worse than hand copying because we have many different versions of different texts that have errors in them. And once it once the error gets past the editing process for a printing press, you can print a million copies all with the same error. Okay, and we know it's an error. It's been printed, and sometimes they catch it early, and then those become very valuable collector's items. That's right, because we know it has an error in it. Well, how do we know it has an error? Because when you compare it to the other copies before that, you see that it was an error. So printing presses are not 100% accurate either. They may only make the problem worse by letting us print many, many, many copies of something that is erroneous. So, But on the other hand, they are, once you start the process of copying, they may be at least, if not more so, accurate than hand copying. So for one thing, let, let's go back to the original. We mentioned the bibliographical test, and we'll come back to that for a second. But let's go back to what I think is an underlying assumption um, that people make about this. And they think that somehow when you look at the God leaving these ancient texts written by human beings, especially at a time when there were not printing presses, this is a very poor idea. I, I don't believe that. I'm not sure, knowing human beings how they are, how God could have done anything different than what he did. Oh, well, he could just appear to everybody and do a miracle. Well, do you think that would work? Would that make everybody believe? No, it wouldn't. There were some who watched that, Lazarus rise from the grave, and they did not they believe. They did not believe. We know, that from, we know that from all kinds of historical, much less the New Testament itself. There's just nothing that you could do that God could have done given the nature of the world that he created and the nature of the human beings in that world, with all of their prejudices and ignorance, there's nothing he could have done any more effective at transmitting his word than what he did. Especially in that time period, information was passed on in two ways in that time period, and, and still is in many cultures. One is by written word, and the written word, carving in stone or writing it on on some kind of paper or vellum or something like that, vellum being animal skins. And the other was by orally passing the information on. I can tell you from just meeting a few people in my life that are, have come from orally-based cultures, they're very good at remembering and passing on information orally. In a modern times, we don't think they are because we don't do it that way. I went to college with a fellow from Nigeria, Felix Bassey, we hadn't seen, haven't seen him in 50 years, Gary. Great fellow. He was from Nigeria. And one day in a class, in a Bible class, upper division, we were talking about, you know, generations of things. And he, the professor asked, how many of you can name your great-great-grandfather? Most of us Americans had no idea who our great-great-grandfather was. He sat there, raised his hand. He starts naming these long names. He named 27 generations of for him family. all the way back. And the professor, how do you know this? He said, well, I was taught this from the time I was a child, repeated it over and over again. I, I was taught my family history. And he began to name all these other – because in that culture, dead relatives and the history of these people is extremely important. So it was passed down. Were there errors made? Possibly. But over time, others would be able to correct these errors. Of being, 
In other words, what humans pay attention to, humans can be pretty good at. Now, the, the texture mentions the telephone game, you know, where you play this game. And we've played it at parties here where you, somebody says something in the ear of one person and they go around the whole big circle and repeat that all the way. And you, you see at the end, it's either the same or different. Sometimes it's different. Most time it's different. Sometimes it's the well, same. I have a point to make about that. Okay, well, that telephone game, the only times that I've played it is you were allowed to tell that whisper to that person one time. Right. You were never allowed to repeat. And, and that would not be true of repeating the Bible, Kate, this, this Bible well, information over and over again. I would like to use the other example. Let's suppose that I took our, our congregation out here, 30, 40, 50, sometimes more people, and I hand wrote a paragraph, say 25 or 30 words. I gave each one of them paper and pencil and gave them the piece of paper and said, copy it. Then I took it to the next person and he copied it and next and so on. And then I took my original and locked it away somewhere so I couldn't get to it. I could take all of those copies and look at those copies and compare them and be 100% certain that I could take from those copies and put together absolute correct to accurate the original. original. Accurate original. And when you add the element that is forgotten in the telephone game, that it matters that you do this correctly. <clears throat> yes. It really matters that you do it because the people that pass these New Testament documents on, even if they did it orally, it mattered to them a great deal. That's why they selected these books to preserve. There were lots of other writings and statements that they could have, but they had selected these because they knew they came from. Suppose you told the people here before you read this. Now, this comes from God, directly yes. from God, and they believed that. Would they be careful about re writing it down? Of course they would, Well, I much could, more so than playing a telephone game. I could take a paragraph right out of the Scripture, right out of an American Standard Bible, and there would be enough respect already without saying anything right. else for those people for to try to, to accurately correctly. copy that. So there is there are parallels <laughs> to the telephone game, but the parallels break down, I think, in the in the in the final analysis as to whether the people in ancient times could accurately reproduce a document. And here's the here's the where it really breaks down. When you ask this question, the bibliographical test, do they accurately reflect what Matthew, Mark, and Luke and John wrote? What you find out is that um, let me get let me get the numbers up here because I've got this here somewhere, Gary. Give me just a second. Well, honey, you're looking uh, at that. The, the like number of manuscripts that we have for New New Testament is well over five thousand different types of man, plus all kinds of copies and translations. You see, so while you're looking that up, I want to make one other point. All right. You mentioned earlier what how would God have done it differently? And honestly, I don't know. I'm I'm puzzled to see that, but. Did he, I asked this question, did he intend to give you something that is indisputable in every way that he wrote it? Did he intend that from the beginning? And I don't think so. I think from... There's yeah. an element that requires you to, I to read, put the pieces together and, right, and make a decision. Right. About it. I, I read Hebrews 11 and 6, and it says, But without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Ours is a system of faith. Now, faith doesn't mean taking a leap in the dark, but it's based on what else you know. Right. Okay. But the evidence that we have 
I don't think God intended to give us indisputable evidence. Hard evidence will only there there Gary and I'm, that's the point I'm making. In human endeavors of any kind, there is no such thing as indisputable evidence. Oh, well, DNA is. No, DNA is not indisputable. And we're finding out more and more all the time that it is not indisputable, that there are many various ways to interpret DNA information and data. Like and a you, lot of times we're, we're wrong about what if we've you been ask, If you ask an honest science, a scientist about carbon dating, he's going to tell you there are a lot of problems with carbon dating. Yet everybody takes it as the absolute standard of truth by which everything is dated, and it's really not, even from a scientific standpoint. If you research it, you find out there are conditions that make that test basically very disputable. Well, yeah, but when humans are involved, there's no such thing as indisputable. It's just not possible in the real world. But you can come to a point of conclusive or overwhelming or a preponderance of evidence. Every conclusion that you draw is based on a preponderance of evidence. Exactly. If I want to tell you who my father is, I'm go I can never have indisputable evidence of that, even if I had a DNA test, because he had other relatives. It, it, it just it would be a preponderance of evidence, but there's always a doubt because, in every case. Because okay? you cannot personally remember, and even your memory may be faulty. Now, now the, the question before us about this, let me, let me, first of all, let me give you some of these numbers here. We have a lot of people that say the Gospels are unreliable uh, are, strange enough, oftentimes people that talk about other things in ancient history. But um, yeah, that's, we have 50, there are presently 5,686 Greek manuscripts in existence today. Now, that doesn't even include all the other translations of those put in other languages. And when you start translating them, you see when you compare the translations, they verify. And so, for example, Plato. There's 1,200 years difference between the time he wrote and the first manuscript that he we have of his. 1,200 years. What's 1,200 years from now? Eight, the 800s? Okay. Between the time Plato wrote and the time we have a manuscript, we have seven copies of it. There's not even a good way to calculate the accuracy that we have. But we, oh, well, Plato said this. Herodotus, all these ancient historians, Herodotus, Suetonius, Thucydides, all these numbers are similar. Over 800 to 1,000 years difference in time. Goes all the way down. Homer is a difference. We only have a 500-year difference between the time he lived and the time of the first copy we have of what he wrote. And so we have about a 95, and since there's 643 copies of it, see, there's the thing, instead of five or six like most of these others, we can say, comparing the copies, just like you said there, your telephone yep. game, we have about a 95% confidence that what Homer wrote in the Iliad is what he wrote. With the New Testament, there's less than 100 years by even liberal scholars' estimation between the time it was written and the first manuscripts. We have 5,600-plus copies, and they calculate is a 99.5% accuracy rate. Now, for ancient, ancient, well, ancient literature, that's <clears throat> unheard of. There isn't anything even close in ancient history, and I would say there's probably not that much. I, I'd say we probably uh, aren't even that sure of the Gettysburg Address. 
when you take the numbers of copies, five copies. You see what I'm trying to say? Or what Washington wrote or what some of the people we know of that we're, we know we can he, he, read about them in more recent history. So don't you look, I'm not saying that you have to agree with what the Bible wrote here. This is not about that. This is about can you have confidence that what's in the Bible that you're holding in your hands is what they, is what they actually wrote? You can have extremely high confidence in that. Now, the question of whether you believe it or not, or well, whether it's true or not, that's or what, a separate question. Or primarily what you extract from it. What you get from it. But do you, do you have the, what these original men wrote? Yeah, the answer is yes. With as much certainty as we can have, given human endeavors, the answer to that bibliographical test is yes. You, you have confidence in this. And that's my point about Eusebius. <clears throat> he apparently didn't extract from what he had things that I can see today clearly from the scripture. Right. Now, did when he copied or when he duplicated the scripture, was he was he accurate? Was he careful? The probability is yes, he was. Yes. So this that's true. This bibli bibliographical test that scholars use for all kind of ancient documents, any kind of, any kind of historical document is the time interval between the originals and the earliest known copies the number of copies existing, and whether the existing copies agree in content. That's the three things they use for the bibliographical test. And the Bible passes all three of these better than what, uh, better than almost any other, well, better by far than any other ancient document. And so you have then these um, tests that have been made. Then there's the internal test, a second consideration considered when evaluating an ancient document deals with its internal consistency. Does the document disqualify itself by contradictions or known factual errors? And so then you have to look at what the scriptures say. And, and there are differences in the four Gospels, but they are not inherent contradictions or disqualifying contradictions. And that's the part of this where you have these. The Bible is not one book. The Bible is 66 different books put together into a one into one book that all fits together but you have to consider you know that that it's different books and written by different people especially when you come then to the new testament doc uh, the gospels which are written what am i trying to say here they're eyewitness accounts they purport to be by people that either saw these things or talked to people that did see these things that's the that's what he's saying here. And so that means that they'd have to generally agree with each other. Now, that's been a, a point of contention all along uh, about the Gospels. That there's all these contradictions. And I think some of that is an. Um, I think some of that is a misunderstanding of what a contradiction is. Well, okay. it's, <clears throat> Say, <throat> saying the sky is azure and saying it's blue is not a contradiction. That's two independent witnesses looking at it and describing it in their own words, what they saw. And I can tell you from knowing a little bit about police work, enough that I can watch TV shows, um, that, that, that when, they get, when they got witnesses that 100% agree word for word in what they're saying, the lawyers throw that out. Okay, They completely disparage those witnesses because they've sat down, concocted a story. So one thing you can know for sure about the New Testament Gospels is this. 
they're not a concocted story because there's enough difference in there to make it clear that different men are writing these accounts based on their own personal experience. Now, you once again, you don't have to believe what they say, but you can't say that they all got together sometime later and decide they would write a book and make some money. You know, when I was in the seventh, eighth grade, I had to write all these essays every week at school I went to, Gary, and especially in the seventh grade. So we had to do a big book report, read a book, do this book report. So one of the questions I always had to answer is, why did the author write this book? So I always put down, the author wrote this book to make money. That's what I wrote down. Every, but, uh, but some people say he wrote it, blah, 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 blah. So the teacher always you know, scratches that out. Of course, she, eventually she, gets, she understood what I was doing. But of course, uh, is, that, is that why the gospel authors wrote this book to make money? Well, if they did, they did a poor job because they didn't get their story straight. Well, let's, let's just – here's my comment on what, one of the things you just said. If God had miraculously made them report these events in virtually the same words, what would we think? It was a concocted story. Well, that's story. what I'm saying. That's exactly what it was. It, it's a basically, God did it a different way to show that it was real. Right. And, and he showed in a few. And, then when you, and here's the thing, Gary. When you dig a little bit deeper, you see the richness that these accounts give, the human character to it. And what you see, strangely enough, is the people there didn't even believe at the time it was going on what was happening. They they did a poor job of being witnesses because they don't even necessarily believe. Well, it uh, tells me that what they wrote, they wrote very quickly after the events occurred. That Yes. Now, now the only one that doesn't appear to be completely that way, jo- John is a little bit, probably a little bit later. He picks out different stuff. Well, Luke had and, the, and Luke is a historian. Yes. Let me, in fact, let me read you. Since you mentioned what Luke said, Luke verse one, chapter one, verse one. I'm going to read Acts. Yeah. Luke is, does not claim to be an eyewitness. Luke claims to have spoken to eyewitnesses. Inasmuch as many have taken, this is Luke one one. Inasmuch as many have taken in hand to set in order a narrative of those things which have been fulfilled among us. Now the in order there, he's saying chronologically. People have tried to write chronological accounts of this. Just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word delivered them to us. It seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write to you an orderly account, most excellent Theophilus, that you may know the certainty of those things which you were instructed. So he says, people have uh, written these accounts. He dismisses them. He doesn't. They're never. They're not considered inspired. Maybe he's talking about the other gospels. Maybe he's not. But he says, "I sat down to talk with the eyewitnesses who delivered these things to us from the beginning, and I wrote this down for you to to read, so you can know the certainty." Now, the word Theophilus uh, is is uh, we're not sure if the word Theophilus, which means God lover or a lover of God refers to an individual, and it was a Roman title of an off, of official, of a, like a mayor or your excellency, that kind of title, or whether it refers to an individual man named Theophilus. We don't know the answer to that. But when you, when you look at this, you see the same thing in, in the book of Acts. Luke and Acts are probably one book. It's been split into two. He said the former account, part one, part two, the former account I made, O Theophilus, 
of all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day in which he was taken up. Now, that's the book of Luke. And he's saying it's a former account. So he's saying it's part one, part two, you know what I'm saying? And then he says, I gave you that account of the things until he was taken up. And, and then he says he gave commandments to his apostles whom he had chosen, to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering with many infallible proofs, indisputable proofs, he says, having been seen by them during 40 days of speaking the things pertaining to God. So what he says here then is this second account is a continuation of the first, wherein I am telling you the accounts of what happened to these eyewitnesses and the people that were there from the beginning and saw him after he was alive, after he was dead and raised from the dead. So uh, Paul, uh, sorry, Luke is saying, I put these two together. Now, now that's a, an eyewitness is taking the eyewitness accounts and putting them together. The other gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke claim to be eyewitness accounts of these things. You know, and so that, that's how you begin to look at these, and you see that they do differ, and that should help strengthen your faith rather than cause you not to believe yeah, in what's the, being said. The, the, real, the real problem is people want to make contradictions where contradictions are not really there. We, we went through an example of this Wednesday night a couple of weeks ago in basically the orderly timeline of what happened from Jesus in the Last Supper the crucifixion and the resurrection. Gary, uh, when you read some of these old commentaries from skeptics, old writings from skeptics back in the 1700s, 19, early 1900s, about how the Gospels and the Bible was made up hundreds and hundreds of years after the account by people living in Europe or somewhere else, this is what they would say. Then you, when you go into the text, though, and you see it consistently saying that Jesus went up to Jerusalem or down to Samaria, this kind of thing, and all the different places and people that are mentioned. We have well over 50 people archaeologically that have been confirmed that are mentioned in the Bible that we can archaeologically confirm, much less all the places. But even the topography and the mentioning of the different plants and animals and things, it could only have been done by someone who was actually there. Couldn't have been done hundreds of years later by someone who had never been to Palestine. Okay, so that that if you read the text, you see you have that kind of confirmation of what's there. And so, well, we haven't really dealt. Our time is almost gone, um, <laughs> but but we haven't really touched. I, I don't I don't think you need to w depend upon the Antonicene fathers to tell you what the New Testament says. I think you can go back to the text itself, and well, you can add confidence in what it says. But yet, much less than that, you can reproduce what the text says from the writings of the Antonicene fathers who may have disagreed about what it meant, but they wrote down what it said. And you can't always agree with their facts either. This, this quote from Eusebius, which I did, which is used to date the book of Revelation, when you look at when Eusebius lived, he couldn't have gotten that directly from John. As a matter of fact, he even says in his text he got it from Irenaeus, but then when you look at Irenaeus, Irenaeus wasn't born until after John, by tradition, died. He had to get it from somebody else. Well, and you get these things are almost third. What we, do, what we do believe is this, that when John was an old man, he met a younger man named Polycarp. And that's, and, and that's, the, that's the link that jo Polycarp knew John. 
Polycarp told people things and confirmed many things, and then Polycarp told Irenaeus, and so forth and so on. And uh, yet we still don't know all the things that they said, and I wouldn't necessarily agree with all of it. But that's the that's Just the sequence. Be careful with all of it. So there are plenty of books that you can get on the reliability of the of the of the uh, New Testament, and I want you to take a look at that if you're concerned about. It. Well, our our time is gone this morning, Gary. Uh, appreciate those who called in. Appreciate the text from John and others and the good questions. I hope it's been not, not too boring for you, but I want to re- I want to ask you to take a look at our website, which is wearejustchristians.com, and take a look there to find information about the church, how to get here, our services, and we'd like to invite you to come and be with us this morning at at uh, 2196 Southwest Savona Boulevard here in Port St. Lucie. Hope that you'll t- tune in again to the show next week. And may God bless you. You've been listening to We Are Just Christians live from Savona Church. WPSL Port St. Lucie.